0: anonymous and all members of the community are welcome to attend. The single most important aspect of AA recovery, however, is the principle of one alcoholic relating to another alcoholic. Therefore only alcoholics actually participate in our meetings. If your primary, prob- if your primary problem, is other than alcoholism, we think it would also be helpful to you to contact an anon- anonymous organization, which more specifically deals with your addiction. In any case, we hope that what you learn here may be helpful to your recovery and or understanding. Good evening, my name's Allie and I'm an alcoholic. The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers and a main speaker. Our first 10-minute speaker is Love B.
1: Hi, Love Alcoholic. Thank you, Mary, for the honor and privilege of participating in my sobriety at my home group. Um, It's wonderful to be back in person in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm nervous. Yes, thank you. my sponsor told me to make sure to get sober, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna check my watch. Um, you know, my sobriety date is September 1st, 2010. You all, yay! Um, Linda, Leuson, Linda L. excuse me, is my sponsor, um, and you all are my home group. Um, you know, I always knew there was something wrong with me, mainly because people used to ask me, like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't know. And um when I finally made it into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, like I learned that I had alcoholism and 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 gratefully at the same time I learned that there was a solution to my alcoholism, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, as long as I was willing to, to do what you all did. Um but I didn't know what was wrong with me for a really long time. You know, I think I was kind of one of those people born with alcoholism, really uncomfortable from the gate. And so I really spent a lot of my time just making my life, my first obsession I would say is like making my life look like what I thought that you thought that it should look like so that I could fix it. I didn't know what it was then before I knew I had alcoholism. Um, now I know that it was that insatiable hole that inside of me that I could not fill up and become comfortable and at ease, but I tried, I tried really hard. So what I had to do to make my life look like what I thought that you thought that I thought, that you thought that it should look like, was like, get the education, get the husband, get the kids, get the career, and then that's gonna fix it, right? Like, that's what society tells me. And um, so I tried all that, I did all that. You know, I worked really hard and, you know, I, and um, it was just, a, it was a real obsession and I realized I, um, it worked. It worked for a while. Um, I worked really hard in school, and then I I finally had uh, my first drink at 13. Um, It was a big orange bottle of Mad Dog 2020. Um, Thank you. I don't... um, That's all I remember about my first drink. I just came to the next morning, right? I didn't remember drinking it. I don't remember what happened afterwards. I just came to, and I didn't know that that was called a blackout until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you all said that that was a blackout, and I was like... You said you know that that was a blackout, and I was like, oh, you mean drinking? Because I didn't know that like people remembered things after they drank, and so I didn't become a daily drinker after that. I didn't really like the taste of alcohol when I first had it. Uh, my parents are obviously hippies because my name is Love, and so you know when I moved to go and live with my dad um, in when I was in middle school, like I lived in the kind of household where I had to learn how to roll my own weed. So, needless to say, like I tried that sort of on the weekends. Um, But really, you know, drinking wasn't really a problem for me, I think, is what I'm trying to get across. Like, I worked hard, I played hard, I drank, and it worked. And you couldn't talk to me about my drinking. I didn't think I was an alcoholic, because I thought an alcoholic was someone who wanted to stop drinking, and I didn't want to stop drinking, so no problem. Um, You know, fast forward, and, you know, I had the husband and the two beautiful children and the house and the career and all of that stuff that I thought was going to fix it, and I had never been more miserable in my entire life. Um, You know, and I didn't know that I couldn't not drink because I never wanted to stop drinking. By that time, you know, I was drinking a bottle of vodka at night and, you know, obviously taking the pills along with it because, like any good alcoholic, I'm going to see the psychiatrist because I'm not really holding it together. But you really couldn't have talked to me about my drinking because I was going to j- work and I was taking care of my kids and, you know, just leave me alone. And... Um, but the more that I drank, the more that I accomplished on the outside, the more empty I felt on the on the inside, and the more that I drank, and the more that, that hole, I could just feel the wind kind of blowing through me. And I... And I just remember somebody used this word in a meeting and they said, you know, they just had this feeling of not enoughness. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I would just walk around in life feeling like I was pretending at life and I felt like somebody was just going to tap me on the shoulder and just say like, we know you can stop pretending now. You know what I mean? And, um, and I thought I was just crazy because my mom is legitimately bipolar schizophrenic and so I just figured at some point somebody's going to have to lock me up. Um, so anyway, the, the husband that I was married to at that time would say things to me like, why do you have to finish it? I don't know, like you don't need the top, like things that didn't make sense, right? Like, um, Or like, you know, I like to do drugs, that was part of my story, but like I was living in a household of delusion where like, you know, he found like a packet of coke like in the linen closet between the towels where you keep it, and um, he was like, is this old coke and i was like absolutely but we all know that there's no such thing as old coke so um you know so he would he would say things like that and then but one time he said something and he said and i felt like it was really rude at the time he said can't you smell that i can smell your insides rotting rude right and so um that sunk in for some reason, and I knew that he was right, and I knew that I was spiritually, like all the stuff I was putting in my body, like I was physically rotting, but I, I knew that I was spiritually rotting. And um, But I didn't stop drinking. I mean, no, that was when I swore it off, not knowing that I couldn't stay stopped, and then I hid my drinking, and then I, um, I got a DUI. I, I, my, I wrapped my car around a pole, and um, the judge invited me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's why I learned thought I was an alcoholic. When I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at the Marina Center, (laughs) yeah, shout out to the Marina Center. Um, You know, I wore a hat, and I told you my name was Kim, because this is an anonymous program, and um, (laughs) but I heard for the first time people talking about the way that I felt on the inside, that bone-chilling loneliness, um, that just feeling of like I I just was so packed down and iced up. I couldn't actually feel anything, not the real love that was surrounding me, not the pain that I was enduring from the things that I was going through in my life. And, um, And I just started to cry because I knew that I was an alcoholic. When I went into that meeting and I and I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous was a solution for me but I had gotten everywhere in life on my own self-will so I wasn't quite willing to do exactly what you were doing you know um and so I didn't um get a sponsor and I didn't start working the steps and going to regular meetings but I and what I learned is that knowledge doesn't fix me and then fear doesn 't fix me like I knew I was an alcoholic, um, I was a- afraid of dying because I knew I would have died in that car accident, even though I kind of wished that I would because it seemed easier than fixing what was wrong with my life. But the fear didn 't fix me, um, and so I drank again because um, I went to that first meeting in November of nine and then my sobriety day is September first, as I mentioned in two thousand and ten so What happened is I drank again for one night, and I got really afraid because I realized that alcohol was no longer my solution when it had been for so long. And I realized that I did not know how to live without alcohol, and I knew that I could no longer live with it. And it was about this time that I met my current sponsor, After a series of, like, going through outpatient and trying to go to therapy and all these other, you know, because I'm going to do everything else besides what you tell me to do because I'm, you know, your standard alcoholic. Um, And so I finally met my sponsor in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, she just shared her story with me, and what I heard her say, I don't know what she actually said, but what I heard her say was that I've lived through every single one of your greatest fears, my life is not perfect today, but I'm okay. And I could see it in her eyes. I didn't know what the word was for it then, but I know that the word now is is serenity. And that's what I wanted, and I became willing to do whatever she said. And that was simply this. I went to a meeting every day, and I got a commitment um, at those meetings, at those committed meetings, and um, I called her every day to stay current, and I met her every week for an hour, and we walked through the book and went through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my experience with the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it did for me, I became aware of peace for the first time in my life. And my experience with the steps is that I started to experience that peace at small intervals of time at first, like maybe a minute. I was kind of, the first time it happened, I was like, What's that? It was like my head was quiet. <laughs> I had no idea that was possible. And then the further I progressed into the steps and the more I started to apply this program in my life, those periods of peace became longer and longer until now I live in that state of peace most of the time because I applied the. The work that I've learned here, the way of living that I've learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous in every area of my life. And if I don't feel that peace, I know exactly what to do to get back there. It's a really simple program. It's not easy, but it's simple. And so what my life looks like today is um, I'm remarried in sobriety. I have um, my children are um, 25 and 23. One of them is here with us today. Thank you so much for being here um for my for my son when he got here as well. and um, and I live in that state of peace most of the time, and I'm able to sponsor other women. and I am sponsored, and I'm right in the middle of the herd, and that's thanks to you.
0: Our second ten minute speaker is John Kay.
2: I'm John, I'm an alcoholic. Before the meeting, I was sitting over here with uh, my sponsor and a few other guys, and they were talking about uh, Steve S., who's here to take a cake tonight, wanted to come a little later so that he, Mary wouldn't nab him to be the 10-minute speaker. I knew, but I wasn't going to tell them. So, Anyhow, Steve, you're safe for tonight, anyhow. Uh, Mary, thank you for asking me to share. Um, my sobriety date is August 27, 1984, class of 84. There's a few of us left still. Um, Tom B. is my sponsor, and the Pacific Group has been my home group most of my sobriety. I say most because uh, uh, I've moved away a couple times. And um, when I came here for the first time, um, it was really, I was following a young lady in here. And so if you're Coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're new tonight, your intentions aren't good. Uh, that doesn't really matter. It really matters that you got here, um, and, it, and what matters is what you do after you get here. So, um, I, I kind of reflective times. You know, we're we're dealing with world global issues right now, and. Um, Part of the reason that I discovered that I was an alcoholic is I'm a, as opposed to a child of the hippies like uh, love, I was a hippie, okay? <laughs> I'm old enough to uh, be a child of the 60s and uh, at that point in time we had a, our own war going on, as Mr. Sells and Mr. Blair know all too well and uh, I was lucky enough to have a college deferment which would have kept me out of the draft. And Um, however, in order to keep that college deferment, you needed to go to class from time to time and show up for some of those exams, and I didn't do that, you know, and uh, after a couple years, um, the, the school asked me to leave, they wanted to give that desk to somebody that was going to show up, and so I took a new occupation, which was, uh, breaking and entering to kind of, kind of support my, uh, drinking and drugging, and, uh, I got caught, and, uh, Went right before the judge, and the judge said, uh, "You've got one one thing that's going to happen. You're going to get drafted, and uh, good luck to you, young man." And uh, so I did get drafted, and and uh, uh, hopefully the young generation today is not going to be facing that similar prospect down the road, God willing. But uh, we'll see where that all plays out. But you know, um, I went, did my basic training. I did uh, advanced infantry training and then found my way to uh, Vietnam and uh, at the end I was, you know, I thought that, that drugs were really part of what led me to, to getting that draft notice and I, so I went over there with all the good intentions I had and I'm a person that's used good intentions my entire life I wasn't going to get loaded with drugs if I'm going to die, I'm going to die sober, you know and uh that lasted for about a month and there were some guys that were smoking some weed out on the bunker line and you know one thing leads to another and and, uh, the next thing you know I'm coming back a year later and I weigh 145 pounds and I'm uh, strung out on heroin and uh, I thought the world owed me something you know I I thought that uh, that time should have meant something I should have been given some kind of Oh, uh, heroes welcome, etc. And uh, uh, that wasn't the case. You know, I went to the unemployment office and they, they asked me what kind of training I had, and I told her that I was a trained killer. Do you have any openings? And, <laughs> and they told me that if they'd send me the checks. I didn't need to come back. <laughs> uh, but I went to work in an auto factory and uh, I soon discovered that I could make good money there selling weed and Which I turned around to use to buy more heroin, and uh, you know my my world was really getting really kind of small. And I was living in the basement of my brother's uh, house, and and uh, for some reason, I, 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 a gift of God, I guess. I I looked in the mirror and I said, "There's got to be more to this." And like love talked about, I thought the outside stuff would fix it. So I had the GI Bill, I went back to college. I, uh graduated, I became a CPA, I got started to get some of that outside stuff. But a funny thing happened along the way, um, that didn't fix the inside problem. So I started accumulating drunk driving, three in about a three-year period. And after the third one, I came out of L.A. County Jail on Thanksgiving morning in 1983, and it was a cold and gray day, and I would have liked to have thought that that would have been enough to get me to stop. But my sobriety date was in August of the next year. And in fact, I have a public drunk arrest that followed that, uh, later. So, I, I, like I said, I followed a young lady into Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my first meeting of the Pacific Group was at Ohio Street. Patty, Patty Reagan was a sp- uh, speaker and, uh, Uh, I had nothing in common with you people. I didn't want anything to do with you people, but what I did want was that young lady. So I was willing to go to any lengths to try to get that together, you know. And uh, I moved in with with her, and uh, about six months in, she had uh, did the ninth step with her ex-husband and asked me to move out, you know, and... (laughs) So I did what any good alcoholic would do. I called my sponsor for the first time in a month and said, what do I do, Rick? And he said, why don't you get a newspaper and look for a place to live, you know? And that wasn't the solution that I wanted. But uh, luckily for me, we had AA softball, and that kept me around. And, uh, you know, I was a good enough player to be on one of the men's teams and, uh that kept me coming back, and I got a um, I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I started to be able to live relatively comfortable. And if you knew one of the things that I would encourage you is is to get involved and and go to the same meetings and make some friends and sit in the same seat so that you're so that you're known and that people will know where you're at. And uh, I. A little bit later, I, I got to be a year sober, and there was a, a young lady that was um, unattached, or recently unattached, and so I started, we dated for a year, and we were engaged for a year, and got married, and uh, uh, that was uh, in 1987, so it was a long time ago, you know. For an alcoholic, that's a long marriage, guys, uh. so... <laughs> And, uh, you know, during that time, I've had wonderful different sponsors. I had uh, Vince until he passed away and and, uh, picked up Tom B as my sponsor, uh, you know, after that happened, which is, what, 13 years, 12, 13 years, a long time ago. And uh, I've learned a bunch from all those men. And what has worked well for me in Alcoholics Anonymous today is the same thing that worked well for me in the beginning. I go to the same meetings all the time. I sit in the same seats all the time. I call my sponsor, maybe not as regularly as I should. Um, and I sponsor other guys and, and one of them, the two that I sponsor is here tonight. You know, and I've been blessed beyond belief. We, uh, we moved away, uh, so I got one minute. Okay. We moved away a couple times and, and found our way back here, uh, uh I guess about 13, 14 years ago. And, uh, the ironic thing, the wonderful thing about the Pacific group is we were gone for 20 years. So anybody that we would have known when we walked into the room on a Wednesday night would have had to have that amount of time and more. And I, and lo and behold, the first night we walked back in here, there were 50, 75 people that we knew. And, uh, you know, my life is uh, beyond comprehension. I've got a granddaughter that is the apple of our eye. Our, our youngest daughter followed uh, her parents uh, in terms of uh, becoming a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she's going to have 10 years sobriety in in uh, a few weeks. And, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I, if you want, if you're new and, and uh, not sure about the course of, that your life is on, Follow this one. You can't lose. We can gladly refund your misery. Thank you.
0: Our main speaker tonight is Tony D. Thank
3: you very much. Thank you. You missed the spot. (laughs) Hi, Gavalt. Hi, uh, my name is Tony, and I am a grateful alcoholic. And uh, thank you, Mary, for asking me to speak tonight. Um, This doesn't get any easier. Yesterday, I celebrated 29 years of sobriety. And... uh, but I learned from, you know, from some of y'all in here that uh, when my sponsor, my whole sobriety was a guy named Marty Warner, God rest his soul, and and another guy who was sort of like my uncle sponsor was Leo Sullivan. And Leo Sullivan used to say to me, he goes, you know, he says, you remember the most important thing that those guys came up with, those, those first 40 winos, he goes, one day at a time. So the first person who gets up, or the the person gets up the earliest today, has the most sobriety for today, because we're all facing the same day. And he's right. I mean, I have 29 years of consecutive yesterdays, but this is the same day for me as it is for everybody in this room. And I got up at about 10 to 5, so I don't know, I might be in the lead here. (coughs) Um, But, uh, you know, this never fails when I get asked to speak at a meeting, you know, immediately. (laughs) Immediately, I go about the business of coming up with what I'm going to say, you know. And that first draft is like nothing short of brilliant. I mean, no, I mean I say that in all humility. I mean, it really was it was it's great. And then, you know, over the days, I go about the business trying to make it more better. <clears throat> and and then by today this morning, when I was taking a shower and I was thinking. Wait a minute, I had some really great connection I made to step through. And I'm like, so here I am, hopefully going to speak as honestly as I can from my heart. And as much humility as I can muster up. In fact, it's a saying one of the traditions about humility, you know, Marty used to say to me, humility is the state of being teachable. And that's all I want to do is I want to learn. Because when I came to AA, when it came to the subject of me, Tony, I was as dumb as a box of rocks. You know, and uh, people who I normally would not mix with um, put me on a path that the the learning. Well, I, I think it was Love or Kim who was shared before me. <laughs> uh, love Kim. Anyway, it uh, was a great share too, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> I came to uh, a right, very quickly. Just let me just do a, a little backdrop in terms of my uh, I was uh, I used to do eight grams of that outside issue um, you know cocaine and uh, I did about eight grams of that a day and three quarts of scotch a day uh, straight up Johnny Walker red or Johnny Walker black depending and you know and that was my and I was running an illegal gambling club because as I was pursuing my career I thought this was the best thing for this particular person to do you know a best Thinking gets us here, and uh, I, uh, you know, I was so I can't wait tables because I uh, wait tables, you know, and I didn't want to drive a cab because I got held up and stabbed. So I thought, well, okay, cabs out, no, no, no more cab, you know. And uh, and then I uh, I hit my first bottom, you know, uh, and my bottom was one where I went to AA meetings in New York, where I'm from. Unless you thought I had a British accent, <laughs> and. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, I, I went to these meetings. I went to the thir- 79th Street workshop. And I went into the meetings, and they were all there. And I was like looking around. And, and everybody just sounded so damn corny. I mean, they just, I mean, I said, where? you know, and I said, where would where they find all these people in New York from like Indiana or something like that, or Iowa? I mean, like all the i state people, Idaho, Indiana, Illinois, I mean, you know. And, and, they were all, and then at the end, you did the, the, the Lord's Prayer. And you did that doxology, for thine is the kingdom. And the, I said, I'm in a room full of Protestants from Indiana. This is like, what? A, I don't belong here. I'm, I'm a hip-slick and cool Sicilian kid from Harlem, New York. I'm the Italian stallion. I, I, okay, I get it. I got a problem with cocaine. You know, I got to uh, stop that. But, you know, the, the booze, I can handle the booze. So I was, I was with you all. I mean, I know you missed me. I was with you for like nine months, and then I, I said Goodbye. You know, uh and I you know it was basically I'll be back, you know the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing, I'll be back, but anyway I uh as it turned out, my life turned around and things started to change for me, and my capacity though for three quarts of booze diminished and diminished diminished to the point like over the next nine years, where suddenly everything came my way, everything came my way, but my capacity for alcohol dwindled to the point where all I could drink was like two or three glasses of wine that was it. I mean, I couldn't drink any of the hearts. I mean, I, I mean, forget about beer. I mean, I don't know what the hell's in beer, but, like, you know, I used to say to people, if I was a woman and drank two beers, I'd wake up pregnant. I mean, I, 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 I had no idea what the hell. I mean, it was like, I, I have no idea what's in beer to this day. All my blackouts, believe it or not, were on beer. The, the three quarts of scotch, I remember every disgusting situation that went down. But beer, what did I say? I said that? I did that? I mean, you know. <clears throat> but... So I wound up in a place where one night, nine years later, my, my life is complete. I mean, I'm telling you, I have, I have like the California fantasy home in Sherman Oaks overlooking the entire San Fernando Valley, you know, a kidney-shaped pool. I have my wife, you know, uh, we're not together anymore. I mean, but nothing to do with her. I mean, obviously, it was a lot about me. But we just weren't meant to be together anymore, I guess. But anyway, my wife's in the house, beautiful woman. Our cats. I have two late-model cars in the driveway, and like the view from heaven. And that night, I happened to have three glasses of wine because I had an early, you know, early dinner because somebody said no to me. You know, you can't say no to me. I mean, you know, no? What do you mean no? And I went, you know, I, 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 I studied the Torah for about five years, so I almost became Jewish. So I know a lot of Yiddish. So I was like totally, I was totally Meshuggahna that night. <clears throat> and, and I went, I, so I remember, it's the first time I admitted I couldn't drive. So I said to my wife, I said, you're going to have to drive because because somewhere deep down inside of me, I knew that if I drove the car, the car would be a weapon, you know, because I was, I was so violent sitting there, just shaking with rage, and just three glasses of wine, just three glasses of Chardonnay, and I am gone. And so we get home, and she says to me, you're acting like a complete lunatic. She goes, you better go walk it off. Now, I'm not about to go walk a mile back down to Ventura Boulevard. So I went into my backyard, and I just sort of collapsed next to my pool. And I'm laying there, and I said, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't believe in God. I mean, I was an atheist, but I was really like a foxhole agnostic. You know, when the bullets were flying, please God, save me up here. And, a, and then when the smoke cleared, was a, that, that wasn't me, you know. Uh, you know just, but anyway... There I am, you know, laying in my backyard and I remember I looked and I saw this, this beautiful home and inside I know it was my wife and our cats and the cars and, and the view and I'm lying there like this and I, and I said something is wrong Because I have all I have a certain amount of celebrity. I have money in the bank And I'm thinking you're not supposed to be like this. I have like what is the French word? I have all the accoutrements that you're supposed to have to say this guy's got an incredibly successful life But I'm in my backyard miserable beyond words because somebody said no to me. And I remember I was like looking up there was a full moon it was it was March it was March 7th you know 1993 and I looked there was a full moon over the neighboring hillside and I was looking and I just went oh, like a werewolf howling at the top of my lungs yeah you know and then two coyotes howled back I mean I <laughs> you know, I can laugh about it now, but I said to myself, that's great, I've become a wild animal. I'm a, I'm a savage. Wild animals know what I'm saying. Hey, Tony, hang on, we'll be right there. Everything left in the box, you know. And, and I just started, after they were howling at me, I just started to cry. And the crying turned to sobbing, and then convulsing. And I think I cried for about 10-15 minutes. That's a long time to convulse, let me tell you. And I was like shaking, and, and, and then finally, I heard a voice. And I heard that voice as clearly as I hear my voice speaking to you all today. And that voice said, it's over. You're done. You need help. So at first I thought it was my neighbor, who later on I found out was an AA, you know. But uh, but I thought it was my neighbor. It was like four of us on this easement up, you know, overlooking the valley. And there was nobody there, and I was looking around, and and I just said to the voice, okay. And I tried to stand up. I couldn't stand up. And this is now almost three and a half hours later, or four, since I had the three glasses of wine. I had to crawl on my hands and knees. And I crawled into the house, hoisted myself up by the doorknob, made a call to a guy who had more time than I did. And I wound up later on sponsoring him. And uh, and I said, I, I, I'm, uh, I can't do this anymore. I, I don't. And he goes, well, let's go to a meeting. And I... You know, like I said, I'm Sicilian. My mom and dad were born in Sicily, so I have, you know, some of the habits of, you know, a Sicilian guy, and I, and I was like, no no mob stuff. I mean, no, I knew a lot of mobsters. But it was like, kind of like I said, nah, I'm on the phone, nah, nah, you know, nah, I don't. And he goes, well, can you stop drinking for 90 days? And I said, yeah, I did that before. So I said, all right, so I did that for 90 days. 90 days later, I'm out. This guy wants me to go out to eat dinner with him. We go out to eat dinner, and he goes, how are you doing with the no drinking? And I said, well, you know, I said, as a matter of fact, I said I think it's like 90 days today, and it was because I marked every day off on of my calendar. So I was counting days just like the characters in the book, you know. And uh, people I normally would not mix with. And uh, so he says, well, if you haven't had a drink in 90 days, let, you know, let's go to a meeting. And I was like, nah. nah, 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 nah. So he says the magic words to me, because what are you afraid of? You know, again, you know, I'm like I think I'm this tough street kid from Harlem and stuff. I'm you know, really not, but I mean, I can pretend I'm really tough. You know, but he says to me, uh, he goes, well, he goes, what are you afraid of? And I, I don't think i ever used this word ever in my whole entire life. No matter how much street time I had, I never said, use this word, I used it then, I said, I ain't afraid of anything. And he goes, well, if you ain't afraid, Popeye, let's go. And, but I was scared to death, because I thought I was going to have to go to a place. My dim memory of those meetings nine years previously at the 79th Street workshop. My dim memory was I was going to go to a place and you people were going to tell me how stupid I was or how dumb I was. And that's like to me that was like a red flag. You want to see? That's when I would really get tough. If you said to me to shut up or you were stupid, then I'd go. I'd go to the mattresses as they used to say in New York. <coughs> and but I was looking at him, looking at him, and I remembered that night in my backyard, 90 days previously, which says in the book, which is the place I had reached, I would reached that place of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And I said to myself, like I was looking at him, and I went, I don't ever want to feel that way again, at least not on purpose. Because that was like, was that without a soul, without any substance, nothing. So I looked at him, I said, all right, let's go. So we went to a meeting. it was the old old men's it was it was a men's stag at the old ratford meeting, the original ratford meeting and i was like i said I was petrified <laughs> and i I walked into a place where I thought I was going to have to like if you told me sit in the corner and wear a dunce cap, I would have done it. I would have done it. I'm not kidding you know and because I was willing you know as it says like in step three, the willingness was born and and that that night in my backyard, and so i uh so I walked into this room and little did I realize it was going to be a place, I mean it wasn't a dating service, it wasn't an employment agency, it wasn't any of those things. It was a place that was going to teach me how to be the best Tony I could possibly be one day at a time with the simple caveat that whatever you guys pass on to me, I must, when appropriate. Pass it on to somebody else. Simple as that. That's it. That's that's the rules, you know. The only the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking and to be of service, I think. You know, they could add that in there if they're interested. If anybody wants to call Central Office in of New York, you can add that. <coughs> but, you know, and I, I'm in this place, and it's like I tell people that I, besides my mom and dad, God rest their souls, you know, great people. Um, but besides them, I... Uh, I have certain heroes. I have certain literary heroes. You know, I was a nerd. I used to go to the library. You know, back in college, I was like long hair and the beard and tear down all the buildings and stuff. But in the meantime, I'd go to the library to read books, and I'd be hanging out with the guys with the pencil, you know, pencil holders in their, in their shirt pockets, and we'd go, "Hey, Tony, how you doing?" You know, and and I just love to read. And you know, one of my favorite one of my favorite authors is a guy named Willie Shakespeare. I don't know if you ever heard of him, and <clears throat> He wrote a play, which is probably the greatest play ever written in the history of mankind. Maybe maybe the greatest piece of literature ever written. <laughs> and it's called Hamlet. And it's about a guy who just can't make up his mind. Sound like an alcoholic to you? I mean, he couldn't make up his mind so much that he drove everybody and himself completely nuts. Completely crazy. But, you know, but if you read the, the, the stuff, it's like unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And the other guy, uh, another British guy, uh, Charles Dickens. You know, great expectations, right? Expectations and resentments on the construction. But look what happened to Pip when Pip let go. Everything happened for this guy. He got got Estella. He found out who Magwidge was. I mean, everything turned out because he just let go. And then Tom Sawyer, uh, Mark Twain, unbelievable stuff that guy wrote. But Mark Twain conned everybody in the neighborhood to paint his aunt's fence, and they paid him for the privilege of doing it. You know how many cons I pulled out there? I mean, to this day, when I do a you know when I do a fourth and fifth step with people, or a ninth, and eighth and ninth step, I think, oh my God, there was that guy. I, I mean, still to this day, because I, I can't remember them all. But there's one guy, and this guy, it doesn't really write fiction per se. Uh, there's a guy named Joseph Campbell, and he writes about the journey of the hero. The hero has a thousand faces and whatever. <clears throat> and I'd like to think that when I walked into that room of AA that night, as we all do when we're newly sober, and we do every single day, that day I became a hero in my own life. I became a hero who was willing... A hero to me is somebody who, they're in a situation where the known all around them sucks so bad that they just, I can't, I can literally cannot take that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization and they say, you know what, I think there's a light down there, I I don't know, there's something down there that's different than where I am, It's, it's dark, it's black, I can't, but you know what, I'm going there because where I am is so bad I gotta go. And when that person, man or woman, makes that step towards that, whatever that is in the distance, they're a hero. And all of us have experienced that, whether we're conscious of it or not. We are. We're all heroes. We're all in the, basically in the Hall of Fame. I mean, what does it take for somebody to make the Baseball Hall of Fame? You just got to get like three or four hits out of every ten at-bats. Okay? I think we have a much higher score than that. I think a lot of us get five or six hits out of every ten fastballs that are hit pitched to us each day. You know, and we get to the Hall of Fame, and we get to be a hero. But the, again, the, the caveat is it's every day you can't just rest on yesterday's accomplishments because this is a new day just like yesterday was it felt like a new day when it started this is a new day and it's about to come to a close and it's going to be a new day for us tomorrow so we can borrow from the stuff that we learned today to work tomorrow you know and if we do with it with it with a with an energy and an import you know I have a good shot that my life can be better you know I when the person, well, when, when you read the, 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 the um, uh, what is it called, the um, chapter five, there's a word, and I'm like a real words kind of guy. I mean, I love words, you know. I mean, it's like the war cry of the is but you don't understand, you know. So when I hear somebody say, but, yeah, but, I go, okay. You know, they didn't hear a word I said, you know. Uh, but, um, <laughs> no, Anyway. In, in, in chapter 5 it says, un, un, I'm constitu, const, I mean, constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves. So when I saw that word constitutionally, and I was a history major in college, I mean I loved history, American world, was, you name it, I, you know, 1072 to Battle of Hastings, I mean all that's, I know it all, you know, and, but constitutionally, and I think to myself, well the constitution of the United States says basically, you know, that you have the right to, 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 to freedom, happiness, you know, joy. Which is what we say. Everybody has the right to a you know, happy, joyous and free people. And so, what I realized was missing in my life when I got to AA, was I didn't have a constitution. Whatever way the wind blew, that's the way Tony went. So Tony needed to stand for something, otherwise Tony would fall for everything. So Tony started to develop a constitution. And one of the, constitu- one of the things in my constitution is that love is a verb. It's not a noun. I used to buy and trade and love and say, hey, do me this favor, man, I love you. Or, You're not going to do me a favor? Do me a favor. Lose my number. Like losing my number was a big deal to anybody, but that's what I would That's a New York expression, you know. <laughs> but I realized that love, self-love, getting to the place where I can love my... See to it that your own house is in order because you cannot transmit something you haven't got. And if we're to be loving agents of this great fellowship, that we belong to, one of the things is love, self-love. You know, I'm I'm not a religious guy at all, um, but I did read the Bible. I wound up reading it twice because I used to argue with people about it all the time. You know, and I never read it. You know, I was a debate team in college, so that, that was my want. You want to talk about the Bible? You know, and it would usually end in screaming, you know, hysterical lunacy. But when I read it, I just said, you know what? Right action needs no defense. I learned a lot of stuff from the Bible. didn't make me religious. But I said, you know, there's some nice metaphors in there. And there's a really interesting thing. It's like, you know, uh, and again, if you believe it's the literal word of God, you know, God bless you. You know, it's not for me. But there's some incredible metaphors in there. And one of them is, you know, the, the, the metaphor of the character of Joseph. When you read this guy Joseph, you think about all the stuff that befell this guy and at the end he turns around and he says to his brothers when he's sitting next to the Pharaoh, "Oh my God, I can't believe I'm seeing you. Thank you so much for this great adventure I went on. I would love to have that kind of commitment to my higher power is to be able to say, "Oh, what a great adventure, no matter what mud was flinged in my face or whatever, my flat tire or whatever, please, just give me the give me that example." But later on in the Bible in the in the in the New Testament when they ask Jesus, they say to him, you know, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, there's two. One is to honor, you know, to love, honor thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, body, and soul. And the other one is just to love one another. Now, when I looked at the ten original commandments, that, that wasn't in the first ten. So this is the eleventh, the eleventh commandment. So that's what I live my life by, this eleventh commandment of loving one another. I don't do it perfectly every day. I don't love myself every day, but I try as hard as I can to do so. Because when I get to this place where I feel a certain thing about myself, and then when I see my girlfriend in the morning, or I, you know, I make a I make a phone call to somebody, I talk to them on the phone. I'm telling you, the Tony that's on the phone then, or the Tony that talks to his girlfriend, and that and that that. Time period is completely different than the Tony during the day, who maybe started his prayers late or didn't even say his prayers at all. You know, don't tell anybody, but you know, some days I don't don't say my prayers, you know, and uh, and I can definitely tell something's awry. And I. Um, I know it sounds corny. I know I sound like one of those dudes from Indiana and Iowa, you know, when I talk about this stuff. But it it doesn't matter. Like when, when the that nothingness, I think, is what Love Kim talked about. Uh the, the nothingness. I uh I love that name love. That's fantastic. Well, obviously I do. I mean I love the name John, it's my father's name. So uh, <clears throat> but um <laughs> And st- one of the things that are in my constitution, besides loving myself and having my higher power be connected to love, is the thing in step seven, where it's near the end, where it says the chief activator of all of our defects has been primarily fear. Fear that we're going to lose something we have or fail to get something we demanded. And it says living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands, no peace of mind can be had until we can find a way of reducing those demands. You know, I said, the difference between a demand and a request is plain to anyone. Well, it wasn't plain to this alcoholic when I got to that. I thought, what the hell are they talking about? What is it that this broke down stockbroker? What what, what? what is this nonsense? You know, what, why did you even write this 12 and 12? What are you kidding me? And, but then I realized that, how did this, ha- how would it happen? So I said, I, saw, I, I I supposed, you know, I said, like, you know, like in the 12 Angry Men, Henry Fonda. is, well, suppose, you know, suppose, so I supposed, and what happened was, I said to myself, when I'm in a place where I want something, okay, and it's okay to want something, people go, oh, you know, your expectations, you know, expectations is a five-syllable word for dreams, and i got tons of dreams, okay? But I can't get all my dreams all at once, because if the universe gave me everything that I could possibly conceive that I wanted, it would push me through the ground. You know, I couldn't play with all the toys all at once. but. When I want something, it's okay to want something. But because I'm an alcoholic, I don't know about non-alcoholics, I don't believe in normals, so non-alcoholics, I don't know what happens to them, but for this alcoholic, when I want something, cunning, baffling, and powerfully, it turns into a need. The minute it becomes a need, then it's a demand. I mean, you know, I, I need to have, I need to, and I go, you know sad news is that stuff's going to keep happening probably for the rest of my life no matter how advanced i might think i might be but the good news is that because of you all you gave me instructions you gave me tools you know and i'm a carpenter i know how to build things and you gave me tools in which to construct or deconstruct how i got into that box and get out of it now, maybe I, maybe I don't get out of it like right away. Maybe it takes me an hour. Maybe it takes me two hours. But it doesn't take me like seven years like it used to. And, you know, and that's because of you all. You know, there's another thing in the Bible that's really interesting. I think it's in Romans. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Peter wrote Romans. And he said, be kind to strangers that you meet, for you may entertain angels unaware. Well, I tell you, every time I come into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys are angels to me. You're like guardian angels. You're having a bad day, and you talk about your bad day, and I think, oh, you know, that stuff doesn't bother me anymore. Or somebody talks about something, oh, my God, I still go into that thing. Hey, buddy, what do you, you go over to, or excuse me, miss me, what? We're all angels. Normally, people would not mix, but we're all angels. You know, um, I've shared about this before. I, um, like I said, I'm not religious, but. I, I like touchstones, I like symbols, I love symbols, you know, I have this AA ring I've been wearing since my first birthday in sobriety, <laughs> you know, and I, sometimes I need to touch it to remind me, oh, you're you're still on planet Earth, don't worry about it, the spaceship is not going to leave without you, don't worry about it, <laughs> you know, but I remember, I remember when I went to the Sistine Chapel, and I think I talked to my friend Mark about this, and I, uh, uh, I, it was like I was the only kid I know. I mean I had to pay my own way through college, my parents they couldn 't afford it. My dad was a truck driver, my mom was a seamstress. you know, like I said, there were Sicilian immigrants and stuff so, but i uh, <clears throat> so I had money left over when I graduated from college, and I was able to pay my way to europe and I went to Italy and i 'm lying on the floor in the sistine chapel and i 'm looking at the i 'm looking at the ceiling, and I see God and Adam you know where their fingers are like this. And so when I was about seven years sober, everything in my life was falling apart. I mean everything. I mean I mean my, my wife and I split up, I lost my house, my career, my career got so bad that I swear to God, if my mother was a casting agent, I wouldn't have got cast. I mean it was so bad, you know, and <laughs> I was one month from complete and total bankruptcy. But during that time when I really learned how to love myself where it was more important to be happy with who I am and not what I am. I remember one day I was sitting at the at the table in the living room and I had a coffee table book about sorry about Michelangelo. And I looked at the tab- the book and I opened it up and I looked at the Sistine Chapel relief. And there's Adam and the Adam and God. And this time when I was looking at it, I didn't know it when I first looked at it, you know, I'm looking at it this you look at Adam, his whole attitude is like he's laying on this like, you know, Lily pod, like a you know, like the Frog Prince, and he's on he's on he's on the thing, and he's got, got his hand out like this, and he's like sort of so relaxed, and his arm, is like you know, it's basically like he's saying to God, like you know, lay it on me, God, show me the magic, you know, like Prospero in the Tempest, you know, it's like show me the magic, you know, and and God is like coming forward with the beard and an angels, these little cherubs holding this clamshell up, and he's like Arr! you know, it's like that, and but their fingers, I realized. They didn't touch. There's a gap between their fingers, and I don't know why Michelangelo did that. And I don't want any artist historian to give me his interpretation. I'll make my own. <laughs> my own, and I swear to God, I would. So curious to find out what art historians say about that, but I don't want. I want my own because my own makes me feel good, and my own is that like I can live in that space, you know, emotionally you know, spiritually. I can live in that space and there are times if I don't even think about it, suddenly maybe, maybe my head touches the top, the bottom of God's finger. Maybe. Or maybe like when I stretch my arms up in the air and I'm really happy about something, I'm touching God, my God of love. You know, I mean, I used to believe in the Santa Claus God and that's okay if you do when you're like seven years old. But when you're an adult like I was, you know, the, the Santa Claus God, you know, doesn't exist. You know, it's not about how, oh, I'm a nice guy. Why can't, you know, because like I said, I went through everything. I lost everything during that period of time. And then when I was happy with in that, being in that space, saying, okay, what will come will come, all right? You know, and it's, there were more things, you know, like, again, Shakespeare, more things between heaven and earth that I dreamt of in your philosophy. You know, when he was talking to, I think, Horatio. And you know, and I thought, okay, fine, I'll live in that space. And then little by little, I became happy with who I am, happier, and convinced that I was okay. I was, I mean, look, I didn't go out in my backyard every day, you know, and do a jig like, oh, I'm happy, you know, I have nothing, you know. But I mean, I was, but I was, I was happy. And there were days when I was like, hey, you know, like I, like I say to people <laughs> when I, I drive now. I don't have the need to roll my window down and tell the other driver how my vehicular skills are so much more superior to his, you know. And I don't need to do that anymore. So now, because you know, when I, you got to make an amends, so I would follow people to, to their homes after I yelled at them, you know, I don't care how far I had to drive, I mean, I literally would follow them. Like, once I drove 25 miles to a guy's house, and the guy, when he got out of the car, he was like, you know, and I said, no, 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 I, I need to say I'm sorry, you know, I'm, in, I'm a sober member about, you know, so. So now what I do is, you know, I just I don't roll the window down, but through the window I go. Yeah, you dirty son of. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Crash that car. Go ahead. Okay. Have a nice day. You know. But I don't have to make the amends. You know. But and I also can be kind of somewhat true to myself. I think I don't know. But anyway, that's um, that's what's that's what's happened to me in my life today. As I'm I'm at a place where I. uh I'm I'm truly, truly happier with who I am and not what I am and what I have. But during this period of time, it's like little by little, as I continued to do this stuff, things started to come back. And then, like, it was like a six-year period where I was like, like this, but at the end of that six-year period, things started to come back, and now, some 18 years later, whatever, I mean, 19 years later, (laughs) everything that I had, held on to it like this, came back in my life tenfold. Okay? But I was happy before it came. You know, like I said, I wasn't a f- grinning fool who walked down the street like, you know, okay, I got nothing, you know, nothing's funny for me, you know. But, I mean, I just, uh, I had a completely different way of looking at things. And that's because of you all, the, the angels, who I normally would not mix with. You come in, and people tell stories. They come up here, and they tell a story about something. I mean, I heard people talk about their stories. And I think to myself, man, I thought I had a bad howling at the moon. Oh, my god. And that guy's got like 25 years of sobriety. Or, or that woman has like 39,000 years of sobriety. How, how did they, you know, how would you, you know? But so th- these are these are examples for all of us to borrow from. Is this thing broken? Is this thing ever light up over here? I feel like I have a bowl of alphabet soup, and I'm talking forever. Huh? Okay. Anyway, um I mean because the even the five minute light didn't go off. So I'm sorry, I got, I guess I got five more minutes to go. Or oh there we go. Did you just do that on purpose, just to shut me up? I said I don't want you to take away any of my time. You know, when you get up here you think, how am I gonna talk for thirty five minutes? And you go, I only got five minutes left? What are you kidding me? I want to tell you about the time that I found that thing back when I was six years old. No. Uh I uh I have no idea what I was talking about tonight. I really don't. But anything that I'm talking about is stuff that I have talked about before, just not necessarily in this particular order. Uh, <laughs> that's, for, that's for darn sure. You know, I, I don't curse when I share. I mean, I know there were in the instructions that David gave sent me, you know, we appreciate you don't curse. So I don't curse. You know, Because sometimes when you're speaking publicly and you curse, I'm choosing to be ignorant. And I don't like to do that. And, uh, and also sometimes, like in the neighborhoods I come from, they get you a punch in the face. So, you know, and like I said, I, I, I know how to box, I know how to protect myself, but I'm not a mixer. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a guy who mixes things, mixes things up. If I have to save my life, you know, heaven help both of us. But, you know, if not, you know, it's like I'd rather walk away. I mean, it's like, I remember one time this girl was, uh, cut me off as I was about to cross the street, and I was like, yo, slow down! And she stopped her. She had a Jeep Wrangler, so it was all open. And she stopped. She goes, "You yes. scared?" And I said, "Young lady, I said there's no reason to use that kind of language." And the guy I was with was, a, you know, he's a guy from the Colombo crime family in, in New York. You know, I'm not that I'm a member, but uh, but he was. And you know, I've known him a long time. And he, he takes me to the side. And he goes, "Are you okay?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he goes. Normally, you, say, you would have like went down there and flipped a car over. You know, you would have gone, you know, crazy. And I said, well, you know, she's probably scared. I probably scared her when I walked down into the street, and that's why she blew a horn and did that. And he looked at me like, he goes, you're on drugs. I know you're on drugs. I thought you were sober. I said, no, I am sober. I just don't, you know, I don't want to. You know, look, I always say, it's like, again, no matter how much I think I know how to protect myself, you know, it's like Mike Tyson, you know, who I knew, Oh, I know, I should say, not new, but I, I know. I mean, you know, I thought he was invincible, you know, and then along comes Buster Douglas and Mike Dyson is sitting on the, on the canvas. So there's always somebody out there that's tougher than you. I don't care who you are or what you think about yourself. There's always, you know, Customato said, because I used to train with Jose Torres, the former light heavyweight, heavyweight champ of the world, God rest his soul. And he used to say, Customato said, you know, when you get in the ring, with somebody, I don't care if it's your baby sister, if you don't treat that person like they're the heavyweight champ of the world, you're going to find yourself sitting on the canvas. So. I don't even want to get in a ring with anybody that I even approximate as my baby sister because I do have two younger sisters. But, you know, I don't want to do any of that if I don't have to. And I don't have to because you guys say say to me nothing pays off like restraint of pen and tongue. I see that the one-minute thing is is on, so that means I have one minute left. So let me just end with this, which I do end all meetings that I speak at. Like I said, my mom and dad, you know, we used to have like bang, 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 like this, my mom and dad. And then all of a sudden, even before I got sober, it started to abate. And then my dad died about two months before I got sober. But we had already had like a thing where he said to me that he was, it came up to me one day, I flew them into New, from, from New York, and my dad said to me something, Anthony, I just want you to know I'm proud of you. And I said, Dad, I'm proud of you, man. You know, you're like the greatest. And, and my mom, you know, we had a wonderful relationship the, the rest of my, her life. And uh, they have a thing in Sicily which some place, some concaves around, you know, uh, America where there's Italians hanging out, especially Sicilians, when they see somebody who they love and respect beyond all measure, okay, somebody who's like, you know, they, they, they just look at them spiritually as like an important part of their life, you know, they go up to them when they see them, they shake their hand, and they go, saint Benedique," which is just to let that person know, you're a bomb, man, in my life. So I say to all of you for my life today and the the thoughts that, like this Indiana corny head that I got going on today, I say to all of you,
2: Saint Benedict, and thank you for my life.